Hello and welcome to the No Really Everything's Fine podcast where we are joining you from the puddle of tears on your desk because you've been crying so much from working on proposals this week. We're here today with a very special guest back in our studio, Andrew Peloso, the top SME of the hour. In fact, Mr. SME, as we see on his title card here. We're so excited to have you here in our podcast studio with us today, where we are going to be talking about the hot topic of go, no go decision making. I am Catherine Bennett, proposal expert and social media influencer here to talk to you about RFPs. Let's get everybody introduced and we will get started with our discussion. Nora, what do you have going on this week? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm Nora Fox. I work for Shipley Associates on one of their uh, Fortune 50 software company accounts. Uh, this week, I'm the RFP gremlin uh, because <laughs> I'm coming to you uh, off of a uh, 40 plus hour work week by Thursday, uh, two RFP submissions due today, and I barely got a shower in. So I I'm the gremlin this week. Welcome. Thanks for, thanks for joining our puddle of tears, Nora. Chris, what's good in your world? Um, Chris LaFountain. Um, good to be back with everyone today and to hang with Andrew again. Um, currently working on the company's biggest RFP that we've had in three years and um, needing to write, needing to create a lot of technical content, um, even though I'm not a SME, um, but it's important to do, hence, hence my title today. So you're not a SME, but you play one on television. I do. I slept at a Holiday Inn Express as well the night before. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> well, we'll hope that's not copyrighted. Um, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, good to see you again this week. Share with us what's going on in your world a little bit. Oh, I'm currently flying solo. I'm at a new job. I'm with uh, Merchant Incorporated. Um, they, they're a environmental consulting firm and I'm super stoked to be there and it's technically my first and a half week and I'm already deep in deep involved in proposals and don't have us and don't have a uh, an RFP person anywhere around me it's like I'm home alone I'm like putting up paint cans and doing all sorts of stuff and I don't even know what I'm doing <laughs> so does it feel is it a little nerve-wracking to be in a new job without a proposal person as a support system Oh dear God, it's unbelievably bad. I'm all like, how do we do things? It's like, do we have like a do we have a letterhead? Do we have font? Do we have standards? I'm like, ah client knows us. We just have to write some stuff down. And then I'm already like into, you know, the fifth or sixth iteration where the client has, you know, we don't have any right. You know, it's 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 like I've I like my expression, it's like the Outback Steakhouse approach towards uh towards proposal writing. There's no rules. There's just right. <laughs> you know, I'm really curious about this because I think probably all of us have spun up new proposal departments, but I've never talked to somebody who's been on the other side of like a before and after, except for somebody who's been in my organization. So Andrew, maybe you can tell us a little bit about like what the difference is but in your experience between having a proposal person, like a dedicated pro proposal person, as opposed to when that um, responsibility is a little bit more diffuse throughout the organization, what, what does it feel like? Boy, I'll tell you, it's, so let's see, one, two, three, four different places I've been at. I've had proposal people, but it's always the, the incarnations a little bit varied. In some cases, it's like, this is the, these are the proposal people. They live in this basement and you only go to see them on you know, Tuesdays and you bring raw meat with you. Or this person here, we talk to them, they're in Boston. And then you can just like, you know, put them on mute. Go, we don't listen to what they have to say. They're in Boston. <laughs> And in a 
it's sort of like a haphazard approach. Everybody's a proposal person. You know, when you're when you walk into a room and you're looking for one, nobody is. But then suddenly, when a proposal shows up, everybody's a proposal person. And then it's like, well, this person does this, and this person does that, and this person mm. aligns all the fonts on the left side of the page, and then the other person comes in, and then we full justify that font because that's an important thing to do after we've left aligned it. So it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag, and you go into organizations, and honestly, you know, for a person like myself, where I've worked on proposals, solicited work, and whatever, it's one of the first things I want to do because all my roles are seller do doer roles. I must do the work, but I also must sell the work. And in order to win the work, I must do it in a way that allows me to win it, and that typically involves people like yourselves. I got to find them quick and figure out how they think. And then most importantly, how does the organization think about them? Excellent. You, you know, we're talking a lot about winning work today um, and, and just how to, how to think about qualifying leads and making sure we are spending our time on the right efforts. So, so this, this idea of everybody becoming a proposal person at a certain point, them having the ownership and enthusiasm towards those opportunities, I think is a part of something that we really struggle with as proposal professionals because everybody wants to pursue their own projects, right? They have their own, they have their own ties, they have connection, they have ownership over these opportunities. And I think it can be really difficult for us to say no when people do express that much enthusiasm and ownership and, and knowledge about these opportunities. So I'm curious from Nora and Chris, um, as we kind of launch into this go, no go decision, what, what do you see works well when we're qualifying leads to support SMEs? And, and like, maybe where are some pitfalls? What are our general, what are our thoughts about go, no go? Uh, I think that you have, uh, one of the potential pitfalls is um, if folks are maybe a little emotionally invested in the RFP that comes through, um, you know, maybe they've put a lot of work in with the customer or things like that. And then the RFP comes in and it's really not a fit. I think that is when I have the hardest time, especially if there's not a data-driven decision-making process for bid, no bid, and there's not qualifying data points that we can assign to it. That is when I see proposal people get overruled quite frequently, and then we're responding to RFPs that we are just not going to win. Nora, real quick, do most of these that you're discussing, do, do salespeople have quotas tied to the opportunity? Always. I, I mean, yeah. you know, salespeople, their goals typically go up every single year. You know what I mean? They're, they don't go down mo in most organizations, you know, so um, I completely understand the drive to respond to things. Um, but I think when you get especially fresher salespeople, um, they tend to want to go after everything. Um, and I've heard that said before, actually, it was a, a, a Lupia webinar. Uh, and I've, I've, this has lived in my brain since I saw it last year, but it was when salespeople win, they look in the mirror and when they lose, they look out the window. Right. And so sometimes it's along the lines of that. Help me help you win more business by not responding to everything. And that is a really hard concept, I think, for a lot of sales folks to get their minds around. Chris, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I was it'd be very easy for me just to say, see Nora, because it's the, you know, the ask. No, the, the whole aspect of uh, going after something with an emotional tie to it and then getting kind of stuck. I mean, particularly where, you know, you have some, maybe some newer sales folks or some newer BDMs in the field who, who, who want to stake their claim 
and just say that, yeah, I'm all that in a bag of chips. And so they, 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 you know, they cast all these rods everywhere and um, you know, they, and they may even be with prospects whom they've spoken with a lot. And so when that RFE comes in, they, they say, Oh, thank goodness. It's finally here. Mm -hmm. And, and the strength of that relationship or the perceived strength of that relationship in their mind is that's, that's the whole big decision right there. Like, like Metallica, nothing else matters. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, so it, it is, you know, to have that data driven aspect, um, be a part of the go, no go to have some real objectivity, be a part of the go, no go really, go, really goes a long way. And it's, and that's not to squash necessarily the sale, the salesperson or the BDM's desire to go after it, but it's, it's a, it's a smart business. It, it makes for smarter business, business decisions because, you know, proposals are a team effort. And so when you have people on a bid, you have people in services have people in finance, legal, various SMEs, you know, they're all vested in this and they all have other jobs, you know, to do. And so for them to spend six, eight, 12 hours on a bid where the company has no shot in hell of winning it. I mean, it's a, it's a morale killer. Um, It doesn't want, it doesn't want to make Mr. Smee work with us ever again. So, um, and, and it makes Mr. Smee question what are you guys doing? Why are you, you know, why are you going after all this nonsense? Go ahead. Um, I was just curious if um, any of you have experienced sometimes, because I've seen this happen before, right? It may not be a seller. It might be another key stakeholder department involved. And let's say they might be a little understaffed or a little overwhelmed. Um, I, I've seen them actually grapple on and fight to respond to an RFP, which is a little bit counterintuitive. And I'm really curious about Andrew's opinion of this. And it almost seemed to be that they didn't want to necessarily admit that they couldn't take on the extra work, right? Um, and and that the department, it, if we want it, we it wouldn't necessarily have the staff to implement it, but it was almost a, we don't want to admit this kind of a thing, or they, they were really, and, and I said, I can't understand why they're fighting so hard to try to win something that one, we know we're not going to win, but two, if we do win it, we, we can't implement it. So really curious on your take on that, Andrew. Oh, I know what my next LinkedIn article is going to be. Um, <laughs> You're I'll, welcome. I'll, I'll, I'll just be blunt. I mean, I, I blame that completely. And it's going to sound really high and mighty and stupid, but on American work culture is, is that we never admit weakness. I, Every company that I've been at, um, definitely private sector, I mean, but even to a certain extent, even the public sector, admission of weakness is, is, a, is a career killing move. If you say to a boss, there is no way we have the bandwidth to do this. Can we, you know, hire more staff or, well, we'll do that. I've heard the infamous things, well, do more with less, or you're just going to have to suck it up or we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. And, there is such internal, the cultural pressure in it, I would argue it's probably, it's pervasive across every company. I mean, that, that culture of you must move that bar, you must, your sales goals have gone up, your, your, the workload has gone up, profitability of the company has to be better. 
you chase work, you chase work to the detriment of your own of your own good. I just wrote an article on LinkedIn that said, you know, and some of you may have read it, which was the statement that you'd have to be crazy to work here. And that I'm making the bold statement that companies don't care whether or not you leave the office the day feeling good or whether your mental health is okay. Only care about bottom line. And bottom line drives those decisions. And anybody who's typically stupid enough to speak up and say, well, you probably shouldn't be going after this. There's a real chance that there's going to be consequences for that person. Andrew, can you can you speak more about that? Like what? Like have you seen people get get fired for resisting? Or like I'm curious what those consequences look like. Like are they informal? Are they formal sanctions? Because I've seen a variety of 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 uh, fallout from sticking up for proposal teams and saying no, we don't want oh. to do this work. So I'm curious what your experience has been with that. Consequences are you know with a big C and with a small C. You know, they can, you can see things where well, we've made a strategic change in our management approach towards a program. And we're going to realign our internal resources to best suit the, uh, the target market needs that we're pursuing, um, i.e. the Danish. Um, there are small consequences with a C and that maybe your bonus just isn't that big that year. Or maybe if there's an internal opportunity to go from like a project manager to like a team lead, you're passed over for that. Or even just nuanced, nuanced things like, you know, like, oh, well, every year I got to go to this conference. Well, this year, Andrew, you're not going to that conference. Well, why? Well, your department seems to be really overwhelmed with work. So we really need you to, like, you know, you know, hunker down and sharpen your pencil and do things that are necessary. Because you keep telling us that you don't have the ability to do things. Um, or there's that even just like the itty bitty C, you know, the subscript C, which is like you leave and leave in the office and you walk by the boss's office and you get the look. Oh, leaving already, I see. Oh, well, you know, I guess you came in really early this morning. And it all of these things play heavy on you if you're concerned about, you know, wearing, as I've, as I've said in many of my job interviews, wearing that same T-shirt. You walk in in the morning wearing a company's T-shirt, you may not be wearing it at the end of the day. And it's always interesting as to what those what what are the things that add up to that. And honestly, yeah. you don't want to be adding anything to if there's a if there's a pile over there on one end of the scale, you don't want to be adding to it. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think about the fact because we talk about go no go, and I want to say that this is like I don't know if everybody here would agree. Like, please correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think it's one of the hottest points of contention in our industry today. And I think if we if the companies that dial it in are the ones who win the most meaningful work because they free themselves up to allocate their resources towards the, the bids that they're most likely to win. And I can't tell you how many companies I've worked at. I want to say it's like five out of six RFP roles that I've had recently that it's like, we're going to chase every, everything. We're going to chase everything. So I don't know what Chris, I, what, like, do you have any thoughts about what it's like to chase everything? Benefits, drawbacks? Oh, like, yes. Can you tell Hell me? Yes, I do. <laughs> tell us a little bit about your experience with that. And like, what, like, like, what are your thoughts about, about, you know, Andrew's response there as well with the consequences of not chasing all the work? Sure. And, and, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that experience of let's go after everything. Well, except Nicole, who's not here. <laughs> She's immune from all this. Her know. managers are un, un, like exactly, otherworldly. Yeah. <laughs> no, we can talk to her because she's not here. Uh, no, but no, no, no. But honestly, it's the um, the 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 whole. You know, you know, Andrew hit it pretty well before when we talked about do more with less and all these corporate cliches that you hear. Um, 
you know, there is, especially with, with organizations that may not be mature or who are uh, like in a startup type of industry where, where they're trying to justify their existence and where they're trying to, you know, show, show the boss that, that they're hitting quota and they're making money. Going after everything is a bit of a pride statement. Okay, I can do all this and I can win all this. And but but they don't necessarily but those folks don't necessarily think of the proposal people or the SMEs or the other resources who are working on these bids and oh by the way have to do all this other stuff as well. There's going to be, and I know management doesn't want to hear this. There's like likely going to be a degradation in quality, you know, if you're going after every single thing. Um, and then uh, um, and 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 that shows, uh, uh, no, for for real on, on the end customer side. Um, in fact, I um, I will admit, you know, in a period of extreme busyness, I made up that word. Um, I sent the wrong file to a customer. Here's our proposal, com company A, and I sent company B's proposal just because I was in a hurry, juggling too many things. I mean, it's you know. Yes. Yeah. So the, you know, uh, you know, and, and that, and that's, and that's a product of going after every single thing. Cause you have these overlapping deadlines, overlapping priorities, and you're just trying to submit and move on, submit that and move on. And it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge and, um, and real conversations have to be had uh, with with the VPs of sales and business development, and to really define, okay, what is the most meaningful? Like, what's the goal? Are we going after every single bloody thing, or are we going after only the really good things? We have to decide at that top level, and then all the decisions can be made accordingly. I'll tell you one of the scary statistics I like to throw out when I'm being asked to chase everything um, is I go, okay, guys. So if you get on the internet, you can pretty much find out that uh, on average costs the company twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars minimum to respond to an RFP. More depending on if it's a big bid or you know what size of the company is. But uh, so if we lose this, we're throwing twenty-five thousand dollars down the drain. Is that worth it? And then I just wait, <laughs> and that usually causes some good debate. So, so people start questioning the their motives after that, or like they they take that seriously. I uh, yeah, because you know it's like guys, we only hit seventy percent of these requirements, right? We we're down, we might be down some staff, right? So we won't be able to implement it. And if we don't win it anyway, we've spent, we've we've invested twenty five thousand dollars, and if we get nothing, then we have lost twenty five thousand dollars in company time, materials, money, effort, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, um, at some points I've gone, okay, we've lost ten bids this year. 10 times 25,000 is how much money have we invested in RFPs that, that we haven't won? Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, if you can quantify it into dollars, that speaks to salespeople. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that, that's a really great example. I also know someone in our industry 
who um, like speaking of, 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 you know, when we're overburdened and we, we talk about capacity a lot on this podcast, but she has instructed her team that if the salesperson hasn't completed their activities by the time um, 24 hours before the bid arrives, that the salesperson has to finish the entire proposal themselves without RFP team support. Um, I won't mention who this is, but it is a spicy way of a spicy way of approaching it. And honestly, um, you know, if you're in an environment where your leadership is saying you've got to respond to everything, I think there are some tactical activities you can take on the back end to say, okay, well, if we're not rowing as a team here, then then we've really got to we've really got to think about that. Chris, mm -hmm. you you had a pretty strong response to that. Well, yeah, well, it's it was funny. Well, it's um, I was remembering uh, my experience from a company years ago where where that that chased everything, um, and it got to the point where. And, you know, I was a department of one, so, so I couldn't, couldn't please everyone. So I'm sorry. Uh, but we did define some, but to back up, to back up what you were saying, Catherine, uh, we defined some parameters as to the types of bids that got proposal team support, you know, it, you know, and we had, we had qualifiers around, around um, potential revenue, number of requirements, the number, um, the number of days that we had, um, you know, and likelihood of winning. I mean, we had a few metrics around those and that went through some crazy formula that churned out, okay, this is a tier one, this is a tier two, this is a tier three. Mm -hmm. And based on those inputs, you know, tier one is you get, you know, the full kit and caboodle. Tier three is I'll review it when you're done. You know, <laughs> and tier two is I'll give you a template and maybe some fodder. And that's that. So, yeah. Yeah. So if if you are a company that really has to decide to go after everything, you know, an approach like that may uh, may be good um, to not just free up your proposal team to go after the right things. But it gives your salesperson a little more skin in the game if he or she has to do it on their own. We are so we are kind of reaching the end of our time here, but I'd love to hear from Andrew before we close out. Is you know what's it like to be a seller doer who hears no from a proposal team, and how can SMEs or seller doers how can how can you um, like like what steps can you take to be a good team member in that respect when you do hear no? You know, I'm a weirdo because frankly, sometimes you know I love hearing the word no because then at least it convinces me that I'm not insane. And that I haven't like drank some sort of weird Kool-Aid where I'm like, oh yes, we must chase everything. Um, I think the I think the one thing that I take from this, and it's a reminder of something that Chris that you said, is, is that I've worked in every company I've worked in has some sort of criteria, some sort of mystical formula that they use, some sort of go-no-go -no -go form, and it gets used once in a blue moon, typically after a very large period of proposals where the proposal team says, enough, you all have a process. You need to follow it. I, I, we're going to follow it. And then like you get halfway through the form and then some well-meaning individual, idiot, says, but, but, but we have to. And then it, everyone throws the form out or then there's a big giant fight. I've actually been in a room where, where, a, where a proposal person walked out where she's like, if this is how it's going to be, you're doing it yourself. I mean, it's it, it, spicy. <laughs> and I think that the I think the big thing that has to come from my end of the equation is is that is that there have to be you've got to follow you've got to follow some criteria, and the criteria in 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 
in, a, in an extension of that provides that justification and it provides that sort of protection and that feel good as to, okay, we did not go after this because this proposal scored zero out of a hundred on our criteria. We're going to win it. And we're not going to buy into that. Oh, the other thing too, that, that Amaya and I hear all the time, but we got to get our name in front of them. We're going to put a dog in front of cat and, but oh no, I've heard this so many times. I can say I've hit a nerve topic for another talk. With getting a bad proposal or getting a, a, a non-starter proposal in front of a client is a form of marketing and it gets past that issue of, well, we're spending $25,000, Nora. Well, but it's marketing. It's overhead. <laughs> it's been, I've been, I've had proposals be laughed at by the customer during the debrief. So that's the impression that you're giving when you send a proposal as a marketing tool, in my opinion. Yes. Like, well, that's assuming that the SMEs and the other people are doing what they're supposed to be doing too, which is, which is follow-ups, interviews, and proposals, and actually listening to what was being said as opposed to, oh, that person just doesn't like us because, you know, you know, <laughs> they had a drink spilled on them at the, at the blah, 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 you know, picnic or something like that. I've heard justifications for things that boggle the mind. And it, it's mm -hmm. funny in, the, in this process how the process, I think all of us who, are, who work it, it's a smart process. There's rules, there's, there's all sorts of criteria and things, and that we choose to let emotions be what we do the most in this business. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. That always seems to bubble to the surface when we're having discussions mm -hmm. here, that technical competency around proposal management is one thing. Managing team dynamics seems to be mm -hmm. one of the more challenging, one of the more challenging activities. Um, so to summarize what we've been talking about today, Nora brought to our attention the fact that looking at data and dollars can make a big difference when we're thinking about go, no, go through our proposal processes. Uh, Chris talked about the importance of involving and tracking your subject matter expert contributions. And Andrew is bringing us some information around boundaries and how, and Chris also talked to us about how to set tier schedules to make sure that you're setting boundaries and constraints around how people are involved in your proposal management activities. Um, I would also love to add to this the fact that technology can play a really big role. If you're not currently using augmented technology, not only not only RFP management software, but your CRM, your uh, market intelligence information, any you know uh, debriefing technologies, anything that can help lighten the workload of your team members to help you contribute more to those direct efforts if you are under the gun, I think can really make a big difference. Um, is there anything else that we want to mention before we close out for our valued listeners today? Yeah, I would just like to point out that a proposal is a sales document. A proposal is not a marketing document. And this is backed up by the fact of how many RFPs have you gotten that say, please do not include any unnecessary marketing or promotional mm -hmm. materials. Mm -hmm. excellent reminder, an excellent reminder. Wise, wise words from RFP Gremlin Fox today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Don't so put much. any water on me. I'll just, <laughs> just melt into the night. Don't come on after night. Right? <laughs> I promise not to eat after midnight tonight. Yeah. Don't don't feed your proposal team after midnight. That's mm -hmm. a that's that's another important best practice that we want to promulgate here through No Really Everything's Fine, where again we are joining you from the dumpster fire in the back of your office complex. Thank you for being here today with us, Andrew Peloso. It's always great to see you as a member of our of our NREF family. If you are interested in learning more about No Really Everything's Fine, you can find our podcast on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, where podcasts 
are hosted. Also check out our LinkedIn page at No Really Everything's Fine, where you can find new podcast news. And keep in mind that we are up for a Signal Award, which is a podcast award that will be announced in November. So stay tuned for important news, updates, and information about how you can help your favorite sales podcast, No Really Everything's Fine, dominate at the Signal Awards. We will see you again next week. Thank you and good day.